The Adventure of the Clapham Cook At the time that I was sharing rooms with my friend, Hercule Poirot, it was my custom to read aloud to him the headlines in the morning newspaper, The Daily Blair. The Daily Blair was a paper that made the most of any opportunity for sensationalism. Robberies and murders did not lurk obscurely in its back pages. Instead, they hit you in the eye in large type on the front page. Absconding bank clerk disappears with £50,000 worth of negotiable securities, I read. Our husband puts his head in gas oven. Unhappy home life, missing typist, pretty girl of 21. Where is Edna Field? Well, there you are, Poirot. Plenty to choose from. An absconding bank clerk, a mysterious suicide... A missing typist. Which will you have? My friend was in a placid mood. He quietly shook his head. I am not greatly attracted to any of them, mon ami. Today I feel inclined for the life of ease. It would have to be a very interesting problem to tempt me from my chair. See you, I have affairs of importance of my own to attend to. Such as? My wardrobe has things. If I mistake not, there is, on my new grey suit, the spot of grease. Only the unique spot, but it is sufficient to trouble me. Then there is my winter overcoat. I must lay it aside in the powder of Keatings, and I think, uh, yes, I think the moment is ripe for the trimmings of my moustaches. And afterwards I must apply the pomade. Well... I said, strolling to the window. I doubt if you'll be able to carry out this delirious programme. <laughs> no, that was a ring at the bell. You have a client. Unless the affair is one of national importance, I touch it not, declared Poirot with dignity. A moment later, our privacy was invaded by a stout, red-faced lady who panted audibly as a result of her rapid ascent of the stairs. <sighs> Your Monsieur Poirot, she demanded as she sank into a chair. I am Hercule Poirot, yes, madame. Oh, well, you're not a bit like what I thought you'd be, said the lady, eyeing him with some disfavour. Did you pay for that bit in the paper saying what a clever detective you were, or did they put it in themselves? <laughs> madame, said Poirot, drawing himself up. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sure, but you know what these papers are nowadays. You begin reading a nice article, What a Bride Said to Her Plain Unmarried Friend, and it's all about a simple thing you buy at the chemist's and shampoo your hair with. Nothing but puff, but no offence taken, I hope. I'll tell you what I want you to do for me. I want you to find my cook. Poirot stared at her. For once his ready tongue failed him. I turned aside to hide the broadening smile I could not control. "'It's all this wicked dole,' continued the lady, "'putting ideas into servants' heads, "'wanting to be typists and what-nots. "'Stop the dole, that's what I say. "'I'd like to know what my servants have to complain of, "'afternoon and evening off a week, "'alternate Sundays, washing put out, "'same food as we have, "'and never a bit of margarine in the house, "'nothing but the very best butter.' "'She paused for want of breath, "'and Poirot seized his opportunity. "'He spoke in his haughtiest manner, "'rising to his feet as he did so.' "'I fear you are making a mistake, madame. "'I am not holding an inquiry into the conditions of a domestic service. "'I am a private detective.' "'I know that,' said our visitor. "'Didn't I tell you I wanted you to find my cook for me? "'Walked out of the house on Wednesday without so much as a word to me and never came back.' 
I am sorry, madame, but I do not touch this particular kind of business. I wish you good morning. Our visitor snorted with indignation. Oh, that's it, is it, my fine fellow? Too proud, eh? Only deal with government secrets and countess's jewels? Well, let me tell you, a servant's every bit as important as a tiara to a woman in my position. We can't all be fine ladies going out in our motors with our diamonds and our pearls. A good cook's a good cook. And when you lose her, it's as much to you as her pearls are to some fine lady. For a moment or two, it appeared to be a toss-up between Poirot's dignity and his sense of humour. Finally, he laughed and sat down again. Madame, you are in the right, and I am in the wrong. <laughs> Your remarks are just and intelligent. This case will be a novelty. Never yet have I hunted a missing domestic. Truly, here is the problem of national importance that I was demanding of fate just before your arrival. On ever. You say this jewel of a cook went out on Wednesday and did not return? Mm, now that is the day before yesterday. Yes, it was her day out. But probably, madame, she has met with some accident. Have you inquired at any of the hospitals? Well, that's exactly what I thought yesterday, but this morning, if you please, she sent for a box, and not so much as a line to me. If I'd been at home, I'd not have let it go, treating me like that. But I'd just stepped out to the butcher. Will you describe her to me? She was middle-aged, stout, uh, black hair turning grey, most respectable. She'd been ten years in her last place. Eliza Dunn, her name was. And you had had no disagreement with her on a Wednesday? None whatsoever. That's what makes it all so queer. How many servants do you keep, madame? Two. The house parlour-maid Annie is a very nice girl. A, a bit forgetful and a head full of young men, but a good servant if you keep her up to her work. Did she and the cook get on well together? Well, they had their ups and downs, of course, but on the whole, very well. And the girl can throw no light on the mystery? Well, she says not, but you know what servants are. They all hang together. Hmm, well, well, we must look into this. Where did you say you resided, madame? At Clapham, 88 Prince Albert Road. Bien, madame, I will wish you good morning, and you may count upon seeing me at your residence during the course of the day. Mrs. Todd, for such was our new friend's name, then took her departure. Poirot looked at me somewhat ruefully. Well, well, Hastings, this is a novel affair that we have here. Huh? The disappearance of the Clapham cook. Never, never must our friend Inspector Jap get to hear of this. He then proceeded to heat an iron and carefully remove the grease spot from his grey suit by means of a piece of blotting paper. His moustaches he regretfully postponed to another day, and we set out for Clapham. Prince Albert Road proved to be a street of small, prim houses, all exactly alike, with neat lace curtains veiling the windows, and well-polished brass knockers on the doors. We rang the bell at number 88, and the door was opened by a neat maid with a pretty face. Mrs. Todd came out in the hall to greet us. Uh, "'Don't go, Annie,' she cried. "'This gentleman's a detective, and he'll want to ask you some questions.' Annie's face displayed a struggle between alarm and a pleasurable excitement. "'I thank you, madame,' said Poirot, bowing. "'I would like to question your maid now, and to see her alone, if I may.' 
We were shown into a small drawing room, and when Mrs. Todd, with obvious reluctance, had left the room, Poirot commenced his cross examination. Voyons, Mademoiselle Annie, all that you shall tell us will be of the greatest importance. You alone can shed any light on the case. Without your assistance, I can do nothing. The alarm vanished from the girl's face, and the pleasurable excitement became more strongly marked. Well, I'm sure, sir, she said. I'll tell you anything I can. Oh, that is good. Poirot beamed approval on her. Now, first of all, what is your own idea? Eh? You are a girl of remarkable intelligence that can be seen at once. What is your own explanation of Eliza's disappearance? Thus encouraged, Annie fairly flowed into excited speech. White slavers, sir. I've said so all along. Cook was always warning me against them. Don't you sniff no scent or eat any sweets, no matter how gentlemanly the fellow. Those were her words to me. And now they've got her, I'm sure of it. As likely as not, she's been shipped to Turkey or one of them eastern places where I've heard they like em fat. Poirot preserved an admirable gravity. But in that case... And it is indeed an idea. Would she have sent for her trunk? Well, I don't know, sir. She'd want her things, even in those foreign places. Who came for the trunk? A man? It was Carter Patterson, sir. Did you pack it? No, sir. It was already packed and corded. Ah, that is interesting. That shows that when she left the house on the Wednesday, she had already determined not to return. You see that, do you not? Oh, yes, sir. Annie looked slightly taken aback. I hadn't thought of that. But it might still have been white slavers, mightn't it, sir? She added wistfully. Oh, undoubtedly, said Poirot gravely. He went on. Did you both occupy the same bedroom? No, sir, we had separate rooms. And had Eliza expressed any dissatisfaction with her present post to you at all? Were you both happy here? Well, she never mentioned leaving. The place is all right. The girl hesitated. Speak freely, said Poirot kindly. I shall not tell your mistress. Oh, well, of course, sir. She's a caution, Mrs. Is. But the food's good. Plenty of it, no stinting. Something hot for supper, good outings, and as much frying fat as you like. And anyway, if Eliza did want to make a change... She'd never have gone off this way, I'm sure. She'd have stayed a month. Why, Mrs. could have a month's wages out of her for doing this. And her work? It is not too hard. Well, she's particular. Always poking round corners looking for dust. And then there's the lodger, or, well, paying guest, as he's always called. But that's only breakfast and dinner, same as master. They're out all day in the city. You like your master? He's all right, very quiet, and a bit on the stingy side. You can't remember, I suppose, the last thing Eliza said before she went out? <laughs> yes, I can. If there's any stewed peaches over from the dining room, she says, we'll have them for supper and a bit of bacon and some fried potatoes. Mad over stewed peaches she was. I shouldn't wonder if they didn't get her that way. Was Wednesday her regular day out? Yes, she had Wednesdays and I had Thursdays. Poirot asked a few more questions, then declared himself satisfied. Annie departed.
and Mrs. Todd hurried in, her face alight with curiosity. She had, I felt certain, bitterly resented her exclusion from the room during our conversation with Annie. Poirot, however, was careful to soothe her feelings tactfully. It is difficult, he explained, for a woman of exceptional intelligence such as yourself, madame, to bear patiently the roundabout methods we poor detectives are forced to use. To have patience with stupidity is difficult for the quick-witted. Having thus charmed away any little resentment on Mrs. Todd's part, he brought the conversation round to her husband and elicited the information that he worked with a firm in the city and would not be home until after six. Mm, doubtless he is very disturbed and worried by this unaccountable business, eh? Is it not so? Oh, he's never worried, declared Mrs. Todd. Well, well, get another, my dear. That's all he said. He's so calm that it drives me to distraction sometimes. An ungrateful woman, he said. We are well rid of her. What about the other inmates of the house, madame? You mean Mr. Simpson, our paying guest? Well, as long as he gets his breakfast and his evening meal, all right, he doesn't worry. What is his profession, madame? He works in a bank. She mentioned its name, and I started slightly remembering my perusal of the Daily Blair. A young man? Twenty-eight, I believe. Nice, quiet young fellow. Mm. I should like to have a few words with him and also with your husband, if I may. I will return for that purpose this evening. I venture to suggest that you should repose yourself a little, madame. You look fatigued. I should just think I am. First the worry about Eliza, and then I was at the sales practically all yesterday, and you know what that is, Monsieur Poirot, and what with one thing and another and a lot to do in the house, because, of course, Annie can't do it all, and very likely she'll give notice anyway, being unsettled in this way. Well, what with it all, I'm tired out. Poirot murmured sympathetically, and we took our leave. It's a curious coincidence, I said, but that absconding clerk, Davis, was from the same bank as Simpson. Can there be any connection, do you think? Poirot smiled. At the one end, a defaulting clerk. At the other, a vanishing cook. It is hard to see any relation between the two, unless possibly Davis visited Simpson, fell in love with the cook, and persuaded her to accompany him on his flight. I laughed, but Poirot remained grave. He might have done worse, he said reprovingly. Remember, Hastings, if you are going into exile, a good cook may be of more comfort than a pretty face. He paused for a moment and then went on. It is a curious case, eh? full of contradictory features. I am interested. Oh, yes, I am distinctly interested. That evening, we returned to 88 Prince Albert Road and interviewed both Todd and Simpson. The former was a melancholy, lantern-jawed man of forty-odd. Oh, yes, yes, he said vaguely. Eliza, yes, a good cook, I believe, and economical. Yes, I, I, I make a strong point of economy. Can you imagine any reason for leaving you so suddenly? Oh, well, said Mr. Todd vaguely, servants, you know. My wife worries too much, worn out from always worrying. Oh, problem's quite simple, really. Get another, my dear, I say. Get another. That's all there is to it. No good crying over spilt milk. 
Mr. Simpson was equally unhelpful. He was a quiet, inconspicuous young man with spectacles. Well, I, I must have seen her, I suppose, he said. Elderly woman, wasn't she? Uh, of course, it, it's the other one I always see, Annie. Nice girl, very obliging. Were those two on good terms with each other? Mr. Simpson said he couldn't say, he was sure. He supposed so. Well, we get nothing of interest there, mon ami, said Poirot as we left the house. Our departure had been delayed by a burst of vociferous repetition from Mrs. Todd, who repeated everything she had said that morning at rather greater length. Are you disappointed? I asked. Did you expect to hear something? Poirot shook his head. There was a possibility, of course, he said, but I hardly thought it likely. The next development was a letter which Poirot received on the following morning. He read it, turned purple with indignation, and handed it to me. Mrs. Todd regrets that after all she will not avail herself of Mr. Poirot's services. After talking the matter over with her husband, she sees that it is foolish to call in a detective about a purely domestic affair. Mrs. Todd encloses a guinea for consultation fee. Ah, uh huh? cried Poirot angrily. And they think to get rid of a cute Poirot like that? Huh, as a favour, huh? as a great favour, I consent to investigate their miserable little two-penny, half-penny affair, and they dismiss me comme ça? Here, I mistake not is the hand of Mr. Todd, but I say no. Thirty-six times, no. I will spend my own guinea, thirty-six hundred of them if need be, but I will get to the bottom of this matter. Yes, I said. But how? Poirot calmed down a little. <sighs> D'abord, he said, we will advertise in the papers. <sighs> now let me see. Yeah, something like this. If Eliza Dunn will communicate with this address, she will hear of something to her advantage. Mm, put it in all the papers you can think of as things. Then I will make some little inquiries of my own. Go, go. All must be done as quickly as possible. I did not see him again until the evening, when he condescended to tell me what he had been doing. I have made inquiries at the firm of Mr. Todd. He was not absent on Wednesday, and he bears a good character. So much for him. Then Simpson. On Thursday, he was ill and did not come to the bank. But he was there on Wednesday. He was moderately friendly with Davis. Nothing out of the common. There does not seem to be anything there, no. We must place our reliance on the advertisement. The advertisement duly appeared in all the principal daily papers. By Poirot's orders, it was to be continued every day for a week. His eagerness over this uninteresting matter of a defaulting cook was extraordinary, but I realised that he considered it a point of honour to persevere until he finally succeeded. Several extremely interesting cases were brought to him about this time, but he declined them all. Every morning he would rush at his letters, scrutinise them earnestly, and then lay them down with a sigh. But our patience was rewarded at last. On the Wednesday following Mrs. Todd's visit, our landlady informed us that a person of the name of Eliza Dunn had called. Enfin! cried Poirot. But make her mount them at once, immediately! Thus admonished, our landlady hurried out and returned a moment or two later, ushering in Miss Dunn. Our quarry was much as described, tall, stout, and eminently respectable. 
I uh, came in answer to the advertisement, she explained. I thought there must be some muddle or other, and then perhaps you didn't know I'd already got my legacy. Poirot was studying her attentively. He drew forward a chair with a flourish. The truth of the matter is, he explained, that your late mistress, Mrs. Todd, was very much concerned about you. She feared some accident might have befallen you. Eliza Dunn seemed very much surprised. Well, didn't she get my letter, then? Well, she got no word of any kind. He paused and then said persuasively, Recount to me the whole story, will you not? Eliza Dunn needed no encouragement. She plunged at once into a lengthy narrative. I was just coming home on Wednesday night and had nearly got to the house when a gentleman stopped me, a tall gentleman he was, with a beard and a big hat. Miss Eliza Dunn, he said. Yes, I said. I've been inquiring for you at number 88, he said. They told me I might meet you coming along here. Miss Dunn, I've come from Australia specially to find you. Do you happen to know the maiden name of your maternal grandmother? Jane Emmett, I said. Exactly, he said. Now, Miss Dunn, although you may never have heard of the fact, your grandmother had a great friend, Eliza Leach. This friend went to Australia where she married a very wealthy settler. Her two children died in infancy and she inherited all her husband's property. She died a few months ago and by her will you inherit a house in this country and a considerable sum of money. Well, you could have knocked me down with a feather, continued Miss Dunn. For a minute I was suspicious, and he must have seen it, for he smiled. Quite right to be on your guard, Miss Dunn, he said. Here are my credentials. He handed me a letter from some lawyers in Melbourne, Hurst and Crotchet, and a card. He was Mr. Crotchet. Now there are one or two conditions, he said. Our client was a little eccentric, you know. The bequest is conditional on your taking possession of the house, it is in Cumberland, before twelve o'clock tomorrow. The other condition is of no importance. It's merely a stipulation that you should not be in domestic service. Oh, my face fell. Oh, Mr. Crutchett, I said. I'm a cook. Didn't they tell you at the house? Dear, dear, he said. I had no idea of such a thing. I thought you might possibly be a companion or governess there. This is very unfortunate, very unfortunate indeed. Well, shall I lose all the money? I said, anxious-like. He thought for a minute or two. Are there always ways of getting round the law, Miss Dunn? He said at last. We lawyers know that. The way out here is for you to have left your employment this afternoon. Oh, but my month, I said. My dear Miss Dunn, he said with a smile, you can leave an employer any minute by forfeiting a month's wages. Your mistress will understand a view of the circumstances. The difficulty is time. It's imperative that you should catch the 11.05 from King's Cross to the north. Now, I can advance you ten pounds or so for the fare, and you can write a note at the station to your employer. I'll take it to her myself and explain the whole circumstances. Well, I, I agreed, of course, and an hour later I was in the train. So flustered, I didn't know whether I was on my head or my heels. Indeed, by the time I got to Carlisle, I was half inclined to think the whole thing was one of those confidence tricks you read about. But I went to the address he had given me. Solicitors they were, and it was all right. 
a nice little house and an income of three hundred a year. These lawyers knew very little. They'd just got a letter from a gentleman in London, instructed them to hand over the house to me and a hundred and fifty pounds for the first six months. Mr. Crotchet sent up my things to me, but there was no word from Mrs. I supposed she was angry and grudged me my bit of luck. She kept back my box too and sent me clothes in paper parcels. But there, of course, if she never had my letter, she might think it a bit cooler me. Poirot had listened attentively to this long history. Now he nodded his head, as though completely satisfied. Thank you, mademoiselle. If there had been, as you say, a little mother, permit me to recompense you for your trouble. He handed her an envelope. You return to Cumberland immediately? Hmm. A little word in your ear. Do not forget how to cook. It is always useful to have something to fall back on in case things go wrong. Credulous, he murmured as our visitor departed, but perhaps not more than most of her class. His face grew grave. Come, Hastings, there is no time to be lost. Get a taxi while I write a note to Jap. Poirot was waiting on the doorstep when I returned with the taxi. Where are we going? I asked anxiously. First to dispatch this note by special messenger. This was done, and re-entering the taxi, Poirot gave the address to the driver. 88 Prince Albert Road, Clapham. So we're going there? May we? Though frankly I fear we shall be too late. Our bird will have flown, Hastings. Well, who's our bird? Poirot smiled. The inconspicuous Mr. Simpson. What? I exclaimed. Oh, come now, Hastings, do not tell me that all is not clear to you now. Well, the cook was got out of the way, I realised that, I said, slightly piqued. But why, why should Simpson wish to get her out of the house? Did she know something about him? Nothing whatever. Well, then? But he wanted something that she had. Money? The Australian legacy? No, my friend, something quite different. He paused a moment and then said gravely, A battered tin trunk. I looked sideways at him. His statement seemed so fantastic that I suspected him of pulling my leg, but he was perfectly grave and serious. Well, surely he could buy a trunk if he wanted one, I cried. He did not want a new trunk. He wanted a trunk of pedigree, a trunk of assured respectability. Now look here, Poirot, I cried. This really is a bit thick. You're pulling my leg. He looked at me. Ah, you lack the brains and the imagination of Mr. Simpson Hastings. See here, on Wednesday evening, Simpson decoys away the cook. A printed card and a printed sheet of notepaper are simple matters to obtain, and he is willing to pay a hundred and fifty pounds and a year's house rent to assure the success of his plan. Miss Dunn does not recognize him. The beard and the hat and the slight colonial accent completely deceive her. That is the end of Wednesday, except for the trifling fact that Simpson had helped himself to fifty thousand pounds worth of negotiable securities. Simpson? But, but it was Davis. If you will kindly permit me to continue, Hastings. Simpson knows that the theft will be discovered on Thursday afternoon. He does not go to the bank on Thursday, but he lies in wait for Davis when he comes out to lunch. Perhaps he admits the theft and tells Davis he will return the securities to him. Anyhow, he succeeds in getting Davis to come to Clapham with him. It is the maid's day out. And Mrs. Todd was at her sales, so there is no one in the house. When the theft is discovered and Davis is missing, the implication will be overwhelming. 
Davis is a thief. Mr. Simpson will be perfectly safe and can return to work on the morrow like the honest clerk they think him. And Davis? Poirot made an expressive gesture and slowly shook his head. It seems too cold-blooded to be believed. And yet what other explanation can there be, mon ami? The one difficulty for a murderer is the disposal of the body, and Simpson had planned that out beforehand. I was struck at once by the fact that although Eliza Dunn obviously meant to return that night when she went out, well, witness her remark about astute pitches, yet her trunk was already packed when they came for it. It was Simpson who sent word to Carter Patterson to call on Friday, and it was Simpson who corded up the box on Thursday afternoon. What suspicion could possibly arise? A maid leaves and sends for her box. It is labelled and addressed ready in her name, probably to a railway station within easy reach of London. On Saturday afternoon, Simpson, in his Australian disguise, claims it. He affixes a new label and address and redispatches it somewhere else again to be left till called for. When the authorities get suspicious, for excellent reasons, and open it, all that can be elicited will be that a bearded colonial dispatched it from some junction near London. There will be nothing to connect it with 88 Prince Albert Road. Ah, here we are. Poirot's prognostications had been correct. Simpson had left two days previously. But he was not to escape the consequences of his crime. By the aid of wireless, he was discovered on the Olympia, en route to America. A tin trunk addressed to Mr. Henry Wintergreen attracted the attention of railway officials at Glasgow. It was opened and found to contain the body of the unfortunate Davis. Mrs. Todd's cheque for a guinea was never cashed. Instead, Poirot had it framed and hung on the wall of our sitting-room. It is to me a little reminder, Hastings, never to despise the trivial, the undignified, a disappearing domestic at one end, a cold-blooded murder at the other. To me, one of the most interesting of my cases. <laughs>